Okay, this is take two on this continuation of my look at Bakunin's God and the State. A very deep dive into these classical philosophical work by Bakunin. So, where we left off, he was talking about Satan, uh, that whole idea, and, you know, the creation myth, the snake in the tree, the apple or whatever kind of fruit that Eve supposedly took a bite out of, and, you know, it set the whole chaotic world into motion or something like that, you know. Um, but anyway, speaking of Satan, Bakunin said, he makes man ashamed of his bestial ignorance and obedience. He emancipates him, stamps upon his brow, the seal of liberty and humanity, in urging him to disobey and eat the fruit of knowledge. We know what followed. The good God, whose foresight, which is one of the divine faculties, should have warmed, warned him of what would happen, flew into a terrible and ridiculous rage. He cursed Satan, man, and the world created by himself, striking himself, so to speak, in his own creation, as, as children do when they get angry, and not content with smiting our ancestors themselves, he cursed them all in, in all the generations to come, I mean. And innocent of the crime committed by their forefathers, our Catholic and Protestant theologians look upon that as very profound and very just, precisely because it is monstrously iniquitous and absurd. Then, remembering that he was not only a god of vengeance and wrath, but also a god of love, after having tormented the existence of a few milliards of poor human beings and condemned them to an eternal hell, he took pity on the rest, and to save them and reconcile his eternal and divine love with his eternal and divine anger, I was greedy for victims and blood. He sent into the world as an expiatory victim, his only son, that he might be killed by men. And this he did. So this is me talking now, by the way, no longer a passage from Bakunin, you know, from this point on. Um, so my, my first note here is, it's, it's a little bit irrelevant, but the word milliards that Bakunin uses, I have to mention this. Back in high school, I wrote some sort of paper on something, and I was using a thesaurus, and I wanted to sound impressive to my teacher, so I, I, I used the word milliards instead of millions, <laughs> and, and my teacher actually uh, demanded that I, you know, revise the work and define the word milliards. Um, so it, it's kind of funny because he was really... Um, kind of attacking me for using a unique word. And that's really sort of a, a funny thing to be sort of attacked for uh, by a teacher, because as a student, you're sort of, I was being pressured to, you know, stand out in some way. And, you know, my young mind, I was like thinking, well, if I use a fancy word and, uh, use it in the right way, 
this this teacher might say, "Hey, this is a this is a kid who's smart, who's you know trying to stand out, trying to uh, impress with his multitude of vocabulary examples." But no, I, I kind of almost got punished for it. It was borderline akin to plagiarism that he was accusing me of or something like that. Um, but anyway, uh, that little rant is over. So uh, let's look at this weird lesson in ethics. So as Bakunin notes, you know, the overall story is convoluted here. So it's basically like Jesus must have said, it is my duty to be punished by my father who is myself for the sins of human beings who I chose to create in my own image, supposedly, but who are separate from me, just as I am separate from my father, who is non-separate from myself, but we are all bound together by my willing yet unwilling, preordained yet meaningful, and individualized yet uh, group sacrifice that is tragic suffering yet salvation and bliss but only salvation for people who are able to put aside their inevitable confusion over all of these plot holes that are large enough for Godzilla to take a Sunday stroll through you know that's and and that lengthy sentence right there that I just spoke that's really no less confusing than the simplified form of this whole theory you know it's like the, the funny thing is that I really didn't even take the long way around. Like, if you were to really dissect the messaging in the creation myth, you would have to have such a convoluted and, frankly, nonsensical text. Like, if you really wanted to understand all of the working pieces that would have to go into that legend, you know... It would be very confusing. No wonder then that almost all those who have supposedly seen the resurrection declared in holy books, they see it as the greatest moral lesson ever to come down to the world. At the very least, it is the greatest moral lesson ever to have come down to the uh, Christian world. Or, or so we are told, correct? Like, that is supposedly the greatest sacrifice imaginable, really the greatest story ever told, or definitely one of the most memorable parts of that story. And uh, we know, you know, the, the Pope found the story at some point. He was receiving daily delegations from those who had originally witnessed it, right? Right? Well, maybe not. Maybe the holy people near these witnesses moral voices you know um really just heard them in their head rather than witnessing these miracles and uh, you know i don't know i don't know like i i do wonder what goes on in like some religious authority's mind do, do they like hear these voices or do they really think that they're living through the history like i don't know I just can't put myself into that mental space. So, um, you know, really what, what really happens, though, is that they 
read it somewhere in a book or heard it from their parents, or there was some preacher, preacher who came along during their own vulnerable moments, and maybe they kind of fill in the blanks with some mysticism, you know, and they kind of time travel in their own minds and uh, sort of make believe that they witnessed something divine themselves. I'm not really sure how that works exactly. I'm, I've never, again, I've never really been in that mental space, so I can't, I can't really say. And frankly, you know, I, I wonder if I was to be able to enter that mind space, if I could ever crawl my way back out. To be fair and momentarily putting all derision against religion aside, I know that some religious people really do provide for the needs of the poor and most vulnerable through occasional charitable acts. Though, of course, that that must be delivered with the caveat that non-religious people can be charitable too. In fact, even I have been charitable, and I'm not even lying about that. You know, and that is great too. You know, we can all be giving. But I, I do have to wonder why the need for some convoluted origin story just to sometimes do good things, like if that's really the motivation. Because for me, whenever I'm nice or actually charitable, I don't really link it to some, you know, <laughs> sort of a fairy tale kind of story. You know, it's just like, well, I'm, I'm just going to do this to be nice. And really that all... That might be all that it is, really, frankly. And we know that sort of a divinely inspired sentence from a religious zealot. You know, they uh, they say, they say all these things, and they condemn all you know all who doubt. They condemn the they condemn those who dare to blaspheme against you know, the story and the memory of Jesus Christ, you know, it's like, burn the witch, burn the witch, not necessarily on such a uh, inflammatory scale, but there's, there are little hints of that too, you know, e even, even when somebody's not getting quite that angry about it, it's like, to me, the, the outrage over, you know, uh, <clears throat> somebody like Colin Kaepernick just taking his knee like that's the biggest that's the biggest outrage of all time or something you know some of these people really do hate you know anyone who steps a little bit out of line or questions things just a little bit you know just uses their brains or dares to make some sort of public defiant display there's some people who definitely hate that and personally if I was to have a God at all, I'd prefer a just and loving God who never inspired anyone to burn people like the Aussies putting shrimps on the Barbie. You know what I mean? And if I was a just and loving God, I would actually have a message like this, you know? I'd be like, why are you not making fun of me? What You should be making fun of me. Why do you not contradict me? by quoting a few of the extreme and disagreeable facts that make me amused, as long as you can find them. And you know what? It's time we mutually be able to say, I love you in some ways, but I hate you in others. But I'm not going to send you to hell or otherwise judge you harshly due to your disbelief. 
My your doubt only means that I should try harder to prove myself that I exist and also that I exist as a just and caring entity who understands his creations. After all, if I don't understand my creations, how can I rightly say that I understand anything? So, you know, that would be like a reverse tautology. Um, that, that is why I'm going to try to make you at least laugh at me. You know, laugh at the creator of this universe. Hopefully instead of insulting me and abandoning me. You know, we could, we could all just have a nice laugh. Failing that, I'll understand if you simply say, I don't care, and walk away from me never to seek me out again. You know, we can go our separate ways. And uh, how about that? That's another possibility other than like, Going up into the sky and enjoying eternal, you know, uh, whatever happiness. Or like going down below and burning and having the skin bubble and peel and, you know, snakes probably biting your nutsack and, <laughs> or, or whatever, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So, all right, if you want to make fun of me, you're free to do so. I will not take it seriously, for laughing is good for the soul. Or at the very least, it can fill it with frenetic energy, sort of like fight or flight. Your cackling laughter is crackling with energy, and it truly is a source of life purpose as potentially valuable as any other, including love itself. For is laughter not sort of a love of life, however fleeting? In fact, it's the only way to deal with absurdities, absurdities which should be viewed with amusement, lest they devour our very souls. And lastly, let me offer you two quotes from Voltaire. Quote number one, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Quote number two, let us read and let us dance. These two amusements will never do any harm to the world. So keep reading, keep dancing, and if you believe absurdities, do so in a safe place where you cannot harm anyone with them, including yourself. So these are my commandments or suggestions or whatever you want to call them. Sincerely and actually existing, just and loving God, Esquire.